You're gonna dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You wanna get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. Welcome to the program. On this episode, part one of two podcasts celebrating 30 years of Cypress Hill smoked out Seminole album Black Sunday. Take a trip down memory lane and go behind the scenes with in-depth interviews from key players, including Joe the Butcher Niccolo, Chris Schwartz, T-Ray and Dan Pearl. When you reflect on the legacy and impact of Black Sunday, what do you think was the secret sauce that made it so unique? Uh, this is Joe, the butcher speaking. Um, it, 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 it was timeless. Uh, nothing up to then or even since sounded like that record. No one, no, nothing, nothing out sounded like Cypress Hill. Um, uh, it, it, that combination of East Coast, West, West Coast, uh, the the fact that it was dusted, but it was hard. Um, that's that's that was the secret sauce. It's just it it was its innovation broke uh, broke new ground, and that and that's why thirty years later we're still talking about it. Hey, this is Chris Schwartz, um, uh, one of the uh, Joe's partner in in Rough House, and. Uh, you know, I always thought Black Sunday was kind of like um, the, like the first record part two. It was like a continuation of it because um, I, you know, um, as, I, as I said before um, on a couple of occasions, it's they had they had gone out and been on the road and touring. And, um, you know, I've always believed that artists you know, really learn how to perform live halfway through their first tour because they learn what works, you know, and when they start to change things and then when they go into the writing process on their next record, they start to take some of those things that they learned on the road that, uh, that you know, move the needle for people in their live performance. And, you know, like, like other artists, like the Fugees and everything, the creative process never stopped for those guys. I mean, you know, and, and right. Joe, I think I'm sure we'll attest to this, that, you know, that Cypress had no compunction about going and doing a show and coming into the studio that very night, right after the show to, to record or to mix. Yeah. I, and to, to play off of what Chris was saying in terms of if it, that it was a continuation of the first record 
it actually was uh, two or three of the songs on Black Sunday were recorded during the first record. Um, I think it it was. Um, I we mentioned it. Uh, I had mentioned it before. I think it was. It was lick a shot. It was uh, uh, hits from the bong and something else. That those were sessions really that spilled over from the first record because we we were in a groove. And um, we just kept recording stuff that that you know that that we wanted to record. So that that's why you know the second record is really kind of a continuation of the first record. was was the was the b-side of the second or third single that 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 was it got into the movie that uh that really bought it bought it to to full tilt bo- boogie you know um right and uh, of course movie, we're talking yeah, about the, juice aren't we right yeah the movie was juice and uh kill a man of like 98 seconds at least i think of that mm. song played in that movie and it, it was a powerful scene and everybody all of a sudden you know was like what is this music uh and that that was definitely the launching point for uh for for the urban community to accept cypress hill it, it, it's funny because right. even when you, when you go to shows today the 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 earliest the uh the earliest fan base was white kids from the suburbs who got high. That's not mm. to say urban kids didn't get high, but it it didn't fit it didn't fit the the rap urban vernacular, however for a for a better word. So you know they they it, they weren't thinking it was whack. It's just they weren't turned on to it yet. But once they got it, they got it. You know. Yeah, and it was it, it's you know it's like it's kind of like the 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 the, the hip hop market. At that particular point, was almost like Japan in a way. It's like very, very, very fickle. But when they embrace something, they embrace it all the way, you know. Mm, and mm. um, and it's very, you know, it's 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 um, it's interesting because, like, again, you know, I talked about the last time that we tried to do this. I talked, I think, maybe extensively about you know Joe's pedigree as a as a recordist, as a, as a producer right. and a mixer of hip hop and what was going on in Philadelphia and the groups and everything. So he, Joe had already had, I guess, like, I guess what, what was that? 1980, you guys opened up studio four and Cypress Hill was 90, 90, 91. I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm hazy on the years, but yeah, it, was 90, already, yeah, it was like 90, 91. Yeah. But it was uh, already 10 years of, 
of really fine-tuning and building a uh, an acumen and a repertoire of like everything that you could do in a world-class studio to take a record and and to like and to and to make it to make it into something that that typically engineers weren't doing. Look, I think at the time there was Arthur Baker. Uh, you know, if you look at throughout the eighties, Arthur Baker, Rick Rubin, and I always say Arthur Baker, Rick Rubin, and Joe Nicolo, right? And all three people had the one thing in common that was taking taking something and doing counterintuitive of what other engineers would not do. You know, um, because I found most most, and I'm not breaking it down to like a racial thing or making a generalization, but most white engineers at the time like just didn't get how to mix a hip hop record. They would like, they would want to make it antiseptic and clean and do all this, like, you know, clean it up because that's what studios were, I guess, designed to do was to try and catch the intended uh, audio, you know, representation of the, of the performance, but hip hop was different. It was, you know, you took a, they wanted a bass drum, but they wanted to hear it. They wanted to feel it. They wanted it big. They wanted, uh, as the Goodmans would say, the bubble in the pedal, right? And yeah. I think that was a very, very big part of it, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. When you look at the production pedigree, like you say, of all those records mixed in hip hop until then, Joe was very much instrumental in subverting the way the mixes sounded, which became, like you say, instrumental and a key ingredient in the way that Cypress Hill sounded as far as the mix. Can you talk about some of the technicality involved within that role as an engineer on Black Sunday? Well, I I, I have to give credit. Uh, Chris just mentioned the Goodmans, and, and uh, he's referring to Lawrence and Dana Goodman, and they had a label called Pop Art in uh, out of Philly, but they also had uh, Bismarcky, they had Marley Marl, they had uh, and they had Roxanne Chante, which was their first big hit with with Roxanne's Revenge, and uh, they're they're the ones who really gave me the opportunity because they understood they understood what what a street record was supposed to sound like and i understood that it had to sound like that but at the same time i you know i i knew that it couldn't sound like a jumbled mess it had to it had to sound like organized chaos okay but those were the guys who who you know and by doing those records and doing uh steady b and cool c <clears throat> jazzy jeff and the fresh prince it was those guys who really, you know, because I was a 33-year-old white guy from the suburbs, but I knew what I liked. But I also, being a 33-year-old white guy from the suburbs, you know, and and be, being growing up on Motown, on, you know, on the Beatles, uh, on, you know, on psychedelic rock, it was like I had a sense of what played on the radio because what what I was what I was hoping to achieve as as those records went on was i wanted i wanted the person who goes you know what i don't i don't listen to a lot of rap but i like cypress hill or i don't listen to a lot of rap but i like jazzy jeff and the fresh prince so there was that you know there was that opportunity to to bring it to a larger audience and uh one quick story about about lawrence and dana and i knew exactly what dana was talking about. Dana discovered Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, right? And 
on as as we started making that record rock the house i i was i was actually instrumental in adding live musicians to rap music and i actually it really started with school ed and and you'll see scram you know yeah the scram guys so and so andy. Anyway, so andy and jay davidson and doug grigsby right. So I and I remember bringing those guys in for a, for a, a Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince uh, s- session, and started you know with the drum machine and added these musicians and Dana, you know he 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 tweaked his nose up a little and he went and he went and I'll never forget he went, Nah man, that shit sound too much like music. and but but the thing is i knew what he meant okay that shit didn't sound too much like music so it's like man we gotta scuff this shit up man it's gotta be scuffed you know it's gotta have the like chris said the bubble in the pedal you know it's like Mm. where's where's the street cred so it took a little bit and it took a little bit of time but you know it was it was that kind of initiation and working with all those records that really taught me what a rap record should have not not, not only f- from the ears but from the soul a little little trivia fact um i i had not i did not know joe yet but um joe joe mixed the Roxanne Shante and i um I was uh, working at a, with Frank Virtue up at Broad and Columbia, and Frank Frank mastered the record. And it was from th- that from there that we that uh, my film partner Rich Murray and I went to uh, to to uh, Lawrence Goodman's house and had a quick little meeting. And we did the video at our house in West Philly, and we had um, we had Marley Marl, uh, uh, uh Mr. Magic, and uh, Tyrone Williams. And arguably at the time, probably one of the most three most powerful guys in hip hop. And we shot the video at our house in West Philly. And um the we shot until the like three o'clock in the morning. And I came down the stairs at like, you know, nine o'clock in the morning, and those three guys were on our chairs and couches in the living room with blankets, eating cereal, watching cartoons. By the power of Ray Skull. You know, fast forwarding then to uh, the Cypress record, we 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 did, and I, I know you'd mentioned that. Uh, well, I will re-mention that some of that record was tracked out at, at Image Recording uh, in LA, and a lot of it was tracked at, here at Studio Four in Philly. Um, even though uh, we 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 tried to get a gruff, you know, rough. Uh, output we used some of the top t- uh, top of the line studio gear that money could buy i mean we had what well, a neve console neve 8048 which today is still the the, the biggest con the best console you can own for tracking which studio four still has uh we mixed it on on a vintage ssl we had we had the right you know great limiters uh great equalizers apa uh uh we had a Fairchild 670, which today costs forty five thousand bucks. Uh, not that it, that makes it special, but it does. 
Um, so, you know, so we, we you know, it, it it wasn't just we used shitty equipment and got a shitty sound. We worked at it's making it sound like you thought it was shitty, but it wasn't. And that's that's the key, that's another key to the Cypress Hill sound that, you know, it, nothing really nothing up, up to that point kind of had that kind of it's it's loopy. Uh, it's, 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 it's foggy, but it's punchy, you know, and that's, yeah. uh, we worked hard at that. Yeah. The close, yeah. closest, the closest thing. And, and these guys were really big influences on, on mugs on the production tip. Really the only other records were probably like, obviously schoolie and, uh, and the public enemy stuff. Right. But there was, right. but the Cypress was like unique in itself because it was like on a whole other plane. It was, it was, it was loud. It was, it was punchy and bombastic, but it was ethereal at the same time. And, um, and, and that's what I just, it just made, yeah. it was just yeah. made it so tasty. And Hey man, of course the PE stuff, uh, it, 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 it in the pantheon of, of, amazing records i think but what what the thing that cypress hill had that was that that struck it as different was east coast west coast yes it, it was yeah. mugs's east coast and my east coast kind of sound and production style to these two la cats who you know uh just didn't sound like the east coast and uh the other night, somebody asked, "Well, how did you go? You know, you guys were so you were East Coast, man. You were you were East Coast through and through. How did you guys wind up with Cypress Hill anyway?" And the quick story is, I was out in L.A. working, doing the Booyah Tribe, and their manager managed Mellow Man Ace, uh, and I did the song Mentorosa, which also became a big hit. And his and I used to stay at at the artist's house because I did. I just did not like staying in a hotel. It was much better. You could you could sleep. You could get get up in the morning with your blanket and watch cartoons and eat cereal. <laughs> so, you know, which and uh, and and get high. You know. So anyway, so make to make a long story short, Mellow Man said, "Dude, you got to check out my brother my brother's group." Uh, I said, "Who's your brother?" He's like, "He's in the other bedroom. His name's Senin Senin Reyes, and it was Senin from Cypress Hill." So I'm like, yeah, man. So I met up with them. I met up with B and they said, our producer is, is mugs. And I said, oh shit, man, I made a record with mugs a couple years ago, the seven, eight, three. So th that's how, you know, that's, that's how it first started. What Cypress Hill represented was the opposite of control, wasn't it? It was the complete opposite of everything people expected, the opposite of control. Can you share any examples of songs that developed to what Black Sunday would sound like? Were there any songs that changed during their process that initially didn't represent where a song could be? Well, the one that comes to mind the most, I mean, a lot of the songs, I mean, because Muggs, Muggs's production style was pretty much intact. I mean, we, we would change... Uh, we would change structure maybe, or we would build something, or we would put like one of his horn sounds to the left or to the right. But the one song that that did change a lot was uh, uh, Ain't Going Out Like That. Because oh. at, and when we when we originally started with that song, it um, it, it really started out as, as a band song, like a live band song with a live uh, uh, blues harmonica player. But the more we listened to it, 
um, I think I was less, I, I was more into it than the band was, but I think, you know, I think Muggs and, and, uh, be real kind of turned to me and was like, nah, man, that shit sound too much like music. So to use the phrase, <laughs> so, um, we pretty much lost just about all the live musician parts and we actually just sampled the harmonica player. So, you know, that, that song saw, saw a big evolution, but most of the other ones were, I mean, they were, they were pretty much intact. Um, Start to finish, you know, the evolution was really uh, in, in the lab with Muggs uh, trying to find the right, uh, you know, kick and snare drum samples and, and how to how to how to make them blend. Because a lot of Muggs's loops did not match up. They they, they didn't not, connect. Right. They didn't connect. They weren't perfect loops. There there was a sluggishness to it. Like, uh, I mean, hits from the bong is a perfect example. OK, right. If I were, and someday I'll, I I have the multis for hits from the bong. If you were to hear all the all the piece of the puzzle pieces of the drums for hits from the bong without that sample, you'd be you would I swear you and I could show you you would you would be like this it doesn't work. I mean, it's there's this hiccup. It's like it's like what? But you drop that. But you know that they hits from the bong. You drop that on top of it, and it just became like this. You know, again, man, this dreamy, perfect amalgamation. It was just a beautiful combination of you know sloppy, but man, just like you know, take another hit from the bong, baby. You'll see where we're coming from. On the first on the first record is um B B talks about um Killerman, how um that was actually three separate songs that they took the parts from and put them together. And um and you know, I I mean I don't know what this is much to do with like Black Sunday from a production standpoint, but um but it, it's like it, it's you know, hip hop you know, back then, because because you got to remember back in you know throughout the eighties, right? And I I so I apologize for mentioning School ED again. Um, but up to up to School ED, most most of the hip hop that was on the radio, with the exception of the very early 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 stuff, like the, the message and stuff like that, um, there was a lot of there was a lot of like what we call like happy rap, you know, very novelty like sounding stuff because black radio 
kind of treated hip hop like a child that they would send to school with uh, wearing wingtips and pocket protectors. Like they really weren't sure because it was all based on advertising and sponsors and everything like that. And it wasn't until uh, tracks like um, uh, uh, Jam On It by Nucleus, which is, you know, it is what it is, but that was an important track because it was so popular, it got black radio DJs and programmers to say, hey, you know what, we could actually do more of this and we can create like a real format from this, right? But right. by the time Cypress came out, it was like, it was going into Black Sunday, it was already like the 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 bomb exploded with the first record, right? They created a lane. Yeah, and then that, that thing was there. And then it was like Black Sunday was just a, like it was like it was it was almost as though the two records were made at the same time, right? Mm. Like it was like a part one and part two, and um, it was that it was uh it was awesome. But my my the point I guess I was going to try and make was that even though we we call them rap tracks and we're you know tracks and everything, right? They still have to be songs. They still have to have the element that like a song has in it that that moves the meter with the record buying public. And that was the, that's the balance. That's the tricky part as a non-producer, you know, just making a humble observation. I think that's the thing that was like, that was really, you know, special about, about the production and what those, I, those guys I, did. I think, yeah. And I think too, what, what we were striving for and it, it just talking, I mean, again, dumb shit luck. I mean, my, I, I in terms of cool at the time, and I guess, Starting, I guess, NWA started, I guess, around, what, 1987, something like that? Yeah. So by 1990, 1991, okay, liked them or hated them or, you know, if if, if mom banned you from listening to this NWA, it was cool. I mean, this shit was cool. You you know, you wanted to have, you know, they, they, they exploited that rough edge. I'm, you know, don't fuck with me. I'm a mean motherfucker for real, for real. Okay. I ain't, this ain't professional wrestling. Okay. Right. I'll fuck you up. And it's, it's also, also with NWA, you know, we, um, we, we had Schooly D, right. And every label wanted to sign Schooly. And we turned down all these offers because we were selling like 300,000 albums independently. Right. But finally, Jive Records wrote the big check, and Schooly wasn't really interested in running an independent label anymore. So all the labels that could not sign him wanted to hire us to promote their records. And one of the very first labels that hired us was a label that did the California Raisins, and they had an artist named Easy E. And uh, I'll never forget that very first song, that 12-inch that we worked was like sounded suspiciously like PSK, <laughs> and uh, and then when they did Dope Man, oh my God, it was like, and then obviously Ice T, six a.m. You know, six in the morning. It's um, it's it's it's, it's again. I just think that like a lot of people don't realize it that that basement that basement at four 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 North Third Street in Philadelphia was really like a like a hip hop. Um, it, very influential cultural epicenter, you know, for things to come. Do you think that Sony initially was able to market the danger of Cypress Hill? No, no. Why as is matter, that? As a matter of fact, there was uh, 
there was a there was one head of marketing at the time who Joe knows uh, and I know because Joe did something with him later on who was vehemently against Cypress Hill and had made it clear in marketing meetings up there that they thought that it was it was going to get them as a corporation a lot of trouble because you got to remember easy uh ice tea uh and his uh you know his whole thing with like fuck the police and all that caused a huge stir within the warner's corporation and um and so people were very sensitive you know because these were publicly held companies with shareholders and people to answer to and you know a lot of these executives in the higher up in the in the management stratosphere had really very little interest in wanting to jeopardize their standings and and their standing with the shareholders based on doing a song by uh, you know a hip hop artist. However, we were fortunate enough to have a um, a couple people up there, uh, a label head for one, who was Don Einer, and um, and David Kahn, who actually um, had was. You know, if you look at the Cypress, the compass logo, right, the skull and the arrows and everything, um, we were up there one day and going past David's office, and he was standing in there with this woman who was with the art department. And the original logo, the Cypress's logo that they gave us, it was a it was a skull laying on the ground with an arrow right next to it, right, yeah. and it was kind of looked it looked like a like a very crude jailhouse tattoo, so. They took took the skull and the woman drew it up on a uh, on a chalkboard, and then David said, "You know, East Coast, West Coast, right?" So like they put the arrows through the skull, north, south, east, and west, right? Mm. And that was like where the 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 um the the you know the the logo the the compass the famous iconic Cypress uh, compass logo. logo had had originated, and right. um. So there, there were people who were who were very supportive. Uh, I think the you know the the black music department uh, at first was like, well, we don't know what or where to, you know what to do with this, you know. Uh, but later on, as it as it did gain its momentum among you know the core hip hop audience at the time, that you know every everybody then company wide got behind it, you know. Sure. But and I think you know. I, I was going to say, I think another thing too, that, uh, we, we were at, and you know, let's, let's face it, you know, the, the pencil pushers business affairs and, and the legal department was, was obviously worried about what was, what could happen. But I think Donnie Einer, who, again, he was the president and David Kahn, they, they realized we could give them cover. We were an independent label distributed by Sony. Now that that right. changed later on, but at the time it's like we can't put this record out but you can. And that's that's what gave them the cover early on on a lot. I mean, fuck Compton. <laughs> I mean, oh my god. Dog, uh, sexual fantasies was such Oh my god, it's just I, it really, it really is a, just a deplorable song. And I remember sitting with, I forget who it was, Chris, but whoever it was, we went in and he shut the door and he's like, I guys, I, I can't condone this song. I, I can't condone the video. I just can't. It goes against my moral principles. Right. But you know, you know what's funny? They, they, <laughs> they end up, they end up, they, and, and the thing is, I wish I could say it was our idea, but it wasn't, but somebody up there, 
because the video was so popular for Fuck Compton in the underground, they said, why don't we release it? And it was the first ever video that didn't get played on MTV, but they re- they, they they made it for sale. You could buy it. It was $9.99 on a VHS, and they sold over 100,000 of them. So wow. and it was before everything that happened with us up there. And it was like, uh, it was really our, our, our first big success up, up at that company, you know? And the thing is, we were also, at, you know, Joe, you know, I would say we were a cheap date, you know, um, yeah. in terms of like our, our deal with them, you know? Um, and we started that, I think they gave us like 12 points. And out of that 12 points, we had to pay, we had to pay the, the group yeah. and the producer and everything like that. We started, you know? yeah, we started with $50,000 and 12 points. That's, that's and where we, we started. And every time there was renegotiation, we kept chipping away and chipping away and like, you know, and, um, yeah. And eventually it became what it became. Uh, but, um, yeah. it, it, but it goes to show that, uh, it, it, it was a thing where it wasn't somebody coming and and like spending millions of dollars to buy this this incredibly you know um talented you know uh from from both a from a from a from a business affairs perspective from a production perspective from the way the label was set up with the street teams and all the stuff that we had accomplished with schooly and up till then and everything you know you couldn't put a dollar value on that but yet they got it for 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 pennies because we wanted that opportunity to be, to be distributed through a major distribution power. And at the time, you know, CBS Records was like they were they were it. They were they were the company to be with. What's going on if you are still listening to this episode and enjoying a podcast? Why not become a patron of Fly Fidelity at patreon.com slash flyfidelity. Becoming a patron means you are directly supporting our show and helping us to create a new episode each and every week. It also means that as a thank you for being a super supporter, you'll be able to access exclusive content to you, including patron updates, offers and discounts, a monthly secret podcast, early access, and so much more. Chris, you talk about Roughhouse going through some growing pains following the first album in your book. What kind of impact did that period have on your relationship with Sony as Roughhouse's distributor moving forward? And was that renegotiation and restructure met with any kind of resistance from we, Sony? We renegotiated, uh, and we renegotiated every time a record blew up because the band would turn around to us. The artists would turn around to us and say, okay, we want to renegotiate. So we had to... You know, we would go to Sony and say, okay, this is what they, you know what I mean? It turned into, I mean, we re, we did so many renegotiations. It was, um, yes. <laughs> it seemed like we were doing it all the time, you know, this is, because we this kept is getting a- artists that were blowing up and right. we weren't set up as a co-venture going in. We were just a little production deal. Right. And this is, then Chris can attest to this, which is kind of funny because it's like when, when people say, well, you guys must have gotten, you know, royalty statements and big stacks of papers and, and, you know, and, you know, the, the, the debit line and the, and the overhead line and all that stuff. 
what this is basically what would happen. We would have we would get a we would have a big record. After the big record, we would go up and we would meet with 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 Donnie and or Tommy Matola and say, we want a bazillion dollars. And they would be like a bazillion. Oh, get the fuck out of here. We'll give you half a bazillion. OK. And they would give us the uh, they would give us the, the, the bag with a bazillion. And the rest of it was like I, I, I never we never we would always every time when that would happen. I know business affairs figured it out with the pencil pushers and figure out the numbers, you know, to make it to make it work out. But the, the only the, the only time we got big chunks was when a big record happened. We'd get a big chunk. Big record happened. Get a big chunk. Sold the company. Got a big chunk. That's right. that's how. That's basically how it went. Yeah, and and also they and also what they did was that you know, um, and it's in any business like the book publishing business, the film business. You know, they they you get you have pipeline revenue, right? So they 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 owe you money, but they don't have to give it to you yet, right? So while they're while you're waiting for that date to get the money. What you're doing gets deducted from that money. So the Nas situation, which uh, which we we talked about the last time we tried this, um, you know, they they didn't want to sign Nas. They weren't sure. So they, and their thinking was, okay, well, let's put it on Roughhouse, and if it blows up, it's a win-win. But if it fails, we take all the money that 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 loses and we deduct we deduct it from the money that we are we, we are roughhouse right? right what they didn't count on was uh or what they didn't realize is that that nas suddenly before the record came out uh the the guys from the source were like call up donnie and said we're going to put him on the cover of the source right so right. so it was sort of like you know um it, it, it's it's like with anything else. It's it's you, there's money owed to you and there's money to work with. You just don't you're 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 spending it as you go along. You know what I mean? And um, yeah. and uh, yeah, it's um, but it uh, but it was a it was a it was a really really great, you know because look, I, I'll be honest, I don't know if what we had done. If it could have worked at a Warner, if it could have worked at an MCA, if it could have worked at an A and M, I mean, there was like what what we considered major labels. Now there was twenty three of them, you know, at the time, you know, until they all started merging and everything like that. And um, and CBS was the least likely. If when you come right down to it, when you look at that company as a whole, they would they would be you would think they would be the least likely company to 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 have something you know like this. Except that, you know, they had Def Jam. And when we did the deal, they said, we got Def Jam and you guys, and that's it, right? So we signed the deal. The first day we went up there for meetings, I'll never forget Angela Thomas, who was our product manager, was sitting in her office. She was eating a salad, and we were introduced to her as a new label. And this is just after they announced Rush Associated Labels, which was 23 new labels, right? And it was like... Oh, here, another label. So, and then, uh, like, literally within two, three months, Def Jam and everything, they were gone. They were gone. And it was just, we just, we had the entire place to ourselves. And we became, essentially, not just through our artists, but then through association. Like, like you know, we bought Jermaine Dupri there as an artist. 
And uh, we want Merger, we want to build a studio down in Atlanta and everything like that for Jermaine. Yeah. And and they weren't into it. They they thought that was just like, oh, why would we, you know, to, to do something like that? And then they then they give him a label deal, you know, later on. Uh, and uh, but, but if you looked at if you looked at all throughout the nineties, uh, by hook or by crook, some way every most of the successful black music coming out of Columbia Records had something to do with us on some level or, an, or another, including Cypress Hill. Bang, let's start the fucking show, eh? lingo appeared l- late on the actual record but latin lingo in its earliest form was part of their they, a part of the, of this of cypress hills demo that uh uh nancy uh walker Nan- nancy walker at uh she she gave them a publishing deal uh, which I, and I went through that whole thing the last time, but uh, to make a long story short, she gave them a publishing deal and they recorded, uh, if I remember correctly, on that demo, quite a few songs were spent, were in Spanish. But uh, one of them, one of the songs that that survived that original demo that we recorded was, was Latin, Latin lingo. And of course, um they there there was really no other no one could come close to to Cypress Hill as far as the Latin market and of course you know we they came out with the uh, with the with the total Spanish uh, Cypress Hill greatest hits record which did go you know obviously went gold in in uh, Spanish speaking countries right they they were they wanted to be very careful um, in the beginning because in, as 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 B said in the in the documentary the Cypress documentary. That they saw what happened with uh, Kid Frost and um, Mellow Man Ace, where where the labels wanted to, they thought they were going to capitalize on this Spanish hip hop market, and they saw that that Kid Frost and Mellow Man Ace didn't really go very far, and so Cypress wanted to be a hip hop group first, and then have, but you know, obviously have that Latin flavor and everything. And as it turns out, they are, in fact, the biggest uh, Latin hip-hop artists in the world uh, right now, still. You could argue that one of the reasons until that point Muggs was able to express himself so creatively with the first album was because of this layering in his work. Do you guys have any regrets that Muggs wasn't able to spend as much time layering the songs for Black Sunday as he did with the first album? Well, the, the saying goes, you you have your entire 
adult life to to write your first record, then your second record has to be written in nine months. And fortunately, you know, again, like I say, at least three of the songs were from the original record. And I guess now, again, you know, you can argue, well, the reason why and it's it's been certified triple platinum now, um, you you know, you you I guess you can justify the triple platinum because of Insane in the Membrane. But um, I don't think the first record has even gone double platinum yet. So it's like you you could you could almost argue the point of like well then maybe he should layer his stuff if he layered his stuff less they would have sold more which of course doesn't make sense i mean it you don't it, the logic is not there but i'm like you know the um uh sure i mean i i think uh you, you know i i i think that you know i'm sure mugs wishes he would have had more time and he you know he's he he's just very thorough, man. He's just you know he spends so much time stressing over every little thing, you know. But um, you know, uh, there, there was no there was no sixteen uh, year old um, young black kid in Chicago talking to a sixteen year old young black kid in Chicago saying, "Oh man, you know I wish Muggs had put more loops on that jump." I don't think that I don't think that conversation ever happened. Okay, I so never even realized that that was the, that that I I was always under the impression that the that the production process was the same as the first. There's something to be said, of course, about the quality of B-Real's voice, this tone, the way it sits on a track show. And I wondered what your take was on the quality of his voice and how that sits on a track from an engineer's point of view. Well, you know, we we went over the top to try to make B-Real as, as nasal as possible. And, and we, we, actually, um, we actually pushed the point to the to the to almost being absurd when i when i used to eq and and it was easy to to do because his vocal was already that 
pointy. Um, I would, I would, I would, I would boost the EQ in those uh, in those frequencies where his vocal was, and then I would squish the shit out of it with a compressor and turn it up so that you know it it, it was almost like a love hate relationship where. If you got into that's that's the aspect of, of it being gruff or it being, you know, being rugged. It's like, wow, it's annoying. Yeah, or, he said for, he, now, said for like the first, he said for like the first two years, if you like on the on the bridge interview, he said for the first two and a half years out on the road, he had he had difficulty um uh, you know, making it sound like the record. And he said, they call, he says it's called nasal. He said, but it doesn't, he says it doesn't come from the nasal. He says it actually comes from, from, you know, from the diet, like from the traditional diaphragm. Um, But he said it was very hard to, to replicate it at first, you know, uh, live. Yeah. You know, and then, and then the same thing, same thing with send dog is like, I did the opposite. Okay. He had a, he, his, his vocal was much more bassy, but that, that yin and yang, man, you know, that push and pull is another mm. part of the puzzle that makes it just that record, those records satisfying, you know? Yeah. Uh, same so thing from, from a lyrical standpoint, you know, um, be real was, was much more cerebral from the head and, and sin was much more, you know, low key from the heart and that combination, man, it was just, it was great. What kind of board were you mixing on during the Black Sunday sessions? Um, it was an SSL E with a G computer, which uh, is still at studio for today. We, it's the first SSL E computer to come into this country. It was on the cover of mix magazine and the record plant in New York took delivery on it. We bought it from the record plant in um, I don't know late in the late '80s. So I mean, at that time, the I mean, a dream was to track it on a Neve, big fat Neve console with the 1081 EQs, and then mix it on an SSL, uh, which is what that's that was a great combination. It, you know, back then that was perp, that was heaven. Studio four. Still around today, 40, 42 years later, the longest running studio in Philadelphia history. That uh, and it's going into its 43rd year and you know, still kicking some butt. Incredible. There's two kinds of studios, isn't it? There's studios designed by investors and studios designed by engineers. Studio four was the latter, and I believe it was designed by yourself. Am I right in saying that, Joe? Um, yes. And no, uh, Studio Four was designed. I, I mean, it was designed by me and my brother Phil. But uh, we got the design from Tony Bon Jovi, who was John Bon Jovi's uncle. And Tony owned the power station in New York. And I remember we, used, me and my brother, used to go and uh, sleep on the floor uh, up at the power station and cut demos with John. Bon Jovi. And I'll never forget one one day when we were up there in the A room, Bruce Springsteen was recording his record Nebraska. In the B room, Sheik was recording their their big hit record. And in the C room, David Bowie was recording Scary Monsters. That's what kind of place 
the record plant was. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, the power station was. And uh, Tony was just an he was an acoustic genius. If you look in the, this room that I'm sitting in right now, which is I built a studio, I built a studio in my backyard because. Yeah, hey man, Kunchahakan was 15 minutes away, and I wanted to walk over, you know, in my bathrobe. Uh, but having said that, this my studio here was this was also designed by by Tony Bon Jovi. Cleverly disguised as a gardening shed. <laughs> 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 but you know what? You know, the thing is, and this is you said that 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 you and Phil would say all the time, Luke, and and you know, you could have and and I I went out and spent a shitload of money on a studio. It doesn't matter. It's not about the airplane, it's the pilot. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, speaking of pilots, let's talk about some of the singles from this project. Was it your decision or Sony's decision to release When a Shit Goes Down exclusively in Australia and Europe? Go ahead, Chris. That's, that's a Sony thing, definitely. They're because they, they, they uh, the different territories, you know, uh, you, you have to sometimes acquiesce to, you know, people know what works in their territory. You know, and right. um, certain things work here and some things don't work over there and, you know, uh, and vice versa. If, 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 if it wasn't if that wasn't the case, then every hit record would be a hit record everywhere. Yeah. And back back then, you had to give a bonus track to Japan. Japan had to get a bonus track. It was just an unwritten law. I mean, if you didn't, it, that's just what you had to do. Do you want to get high? two cypress hill records uh the bonus tracks that we gave to japan were remixes they weren't original song they weren't original songs that's all i remember right right what about scooby-doo scooby-doo is the b-side for like a shot which didn't appear on the album as well what do you remember about scooby-doo um we recorded that during we we, we were doing it what was the um what was the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie that we had a song in, Chris. Um, oh, uh, Kindergarten Cop. No, no, it was a, it was a blow him up big. Was it oh, like a um, shot? Oh, the the uh, the thing he was a spy and the wife didn't know. All I remember is when we came in. We we recorded a song specifically for that movie, which I thought was like a wasn't, shot. Wasn't, wasn't the Harrison Ford movie? No, no, I, no. It was. Um, you remember that though, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, this was. Um, this was Schwarzenegger. Anyway, um, 
we that was another song that we recorded. We were we were trying to decide on what song to give the movie people, and uh, I guess lick if it was lick a shot, that's the one that made it. Scooby Doo was another one that you know it's like it was kind of a throwaway, but uh, you know so. But you try a couple things, and that that's that was recorded for for that movie soundtrack, and that's why it wasn't on the record. Got it. What about sequence in the album, which I understand was heavily informed by Mushrooms and Lighting? There's these stories that the album was mixed when the group well, was know, high on Mushrooms. Uh, that's that's true. And I got violently ill uh, on the Mushrooms that Muggs had brought because I think I had ingested too many. But once I got done throwing up <laughs> and straight down. But you always down, get sick at first with, from Shrooms, though, I think. Yeah, well. I think it's true. I just it's a, it's, a, it's a low tolerance in my stomach. But anyway, um, that that helped. That was um, that that helped uh, motivate us into in terms of like when we would listen to it. You know, the the ebb and flow of the whole project was always really important. And of course, vinyl at the time, the last song on side one had to feel like something, and then the la- the first song on side two had to feel like something. And I'll tell you something really interesting about uh, sequencing the first Cypress Hill record, which I uh, I think maybe I was a little too high at the time, but the last thing that you hear on that, that, that little, that little bonus thing, the evidence, the, the, there's something about marijuana and then it goes right. backwards and it goes forwards. Right. I created that. I didn't tell Cypress I was putting it on the record they didn't hear it until they got the actual record. And I, I mean, it's like, I look back on that now, man, again, it was, it was because they weren't big and famous and I was Joe the butcher. So I was like, ah, oh, they'll love it. You know? And I, I mean, it, you know, it, it, I think obviously by the second or third work record, I wouldn't have done it because they would have obviously been pissed that I took that kind of Liberty, but that I put that, like I said, I you know it was one night it was fucked up and I I put that together and I thought this is a good way to end the record and I just stuck it on there without even telling them. Oh my god, that yeah. that that was pretty ballsy. Yeah, <laughs> really. I mean, it's like <laughs> pretty ballsy, man. <laughs> and um, and they never complained and they never through the no one ever 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 said like man we really didn't like it but it it's okay everybody was like no nah, man we it was cool so they were with it they were with it do you guys have any idea how much weed was smoked in those sessions for black sunday <laughs> i didn't smoke i didn't smoke weed at the time yet that i i was i wasn't really in the session so wow. yeah, that, that's a joke yeah. question for sure <laughs> i mean here's the way here's the way the way we would get through smoking that much weed was we would we would get up especially out in LA well no here in Philly too because we would go to to uh uh, uh there was a, a gym on Chestnut Street uh, anyway to make a long story short we would get up early we would get up early we would go work out at the gym have get us have a solid breakfast and then hit the studio at like 10 o'clock in the morning okay so and and then blaze all day and then like by six or six or seven o'clock at night we were toasted we were done and then we would leave and either hit the you know go to a club or relax or you know go, go you know get a blanket and eat cereal and watch cartoons at night <laughs> but 
you know, so you think like Cypress is like, oh, man, dark, middle of the night, smoking a joint, doing vocals. Not, not at all. It was all like, you know, it's like focused daytime. Uh, we were blazing. Okay. Quite, quite, a, quite a work ethic. You know, the guys that, do it, that, that, were sh- that shot the documentary, and this is the one thing with Cypress, if you got all their interviews and everything, they, until till this day, they they take their gig so seriously. The guy, the director of the documentary said it's the first time he ever did anything on film. This guy's done a ton of stuff with hip hop artists and everything that he when he got to the set, they were there before he was. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's I mean, it's trickle down effect. But Muggs is to this day, man, he's like he's he's about. He's about the work at work hard, play hard. I mean, he is that's his work ethic. And, he, you know, it's like I, I mean, of course, now I'm I'm a 67 year old white guy from the suburbs. It's like shit. I don't work. I don't work at night, but uh, my body doesn't work at night. But um, those guys, you know, that's that was our ethic. Right. You say in your book that for you, Rough House was purpose, chaos and adventure. When you each reflect on that purpose, chaos, and adventure, what strikes you the most about working with Cypress Hill? I just thought they were incredibly dedicated to their craft. More so, more so than a lot of artists. And you know, here's the thing: it's um, a lot of hip hop artists. You know, the the big the biggest problem is like like a lot of artists. You you, you sign them to a record, they have a record that does really well. They go to Europe, they hate it. And they can't wait to get back home. And then they make their next record. They don't want to go to Europe. And the record doesn't do so well over there. And it's like, whereas Cypress, you know, and I know Sen later on had issues about touring and everything. Uh, but but at the end of the day, I, you know, they 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 loved performing live. And they um they they were, you know, they they were like a again it goes back i just think they had and they I, they had an exceptional work ethic that i think that was superseded a lot of groups um well obviously i mean purpose when you talk about mission statement you i mean as far as cypress hill you want to create something timeless something that people like yourself or want to hear about uh 30 years later so obviously from a purpose standpoint we we achieved those uh goals uh chaos <laughs> throwing up after eating too many mushrooms and <laughs> um you know uh there, there's the, the the it's funny how much chaos there what there is or was uh one I, I think i told the story the last time that you know it's like i'm i'm actually uh with mario coldado and the and the and and the dust brothers and uh uh the beastie boys in la at their house and uh um you know what was uh what's her name uh um i keep forgetting your name from from bm nancy walker nancy walker jesus think about jeff walker and just change the name to nancy right (laughs) And, and nancy walker is like she tells her mom she's got to meet this Joe the Butcher at midnight somewhere in, in East L.A. And she comes to the door, knocks on the door, and I run downstairs. It's like I grab the cassette. Thanks. And I shut the door. I mean, it's just that it was organized. It was just craziness. Um, and what was the third one? Chaos and 
uh, uh, adventure. 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 Uh, well, it was an adventure. Yeah, I mean, they, they. I just said the. I just tell you what the event. I mean, the, the whole the whole thing, man. It's like Roughhouse had so many. I mean, a record that enters the chart at at number one or holds the number one spot for weeks on end. That's winning the Super Bowl. I mean, mm. me and Chris, we've got like five Super Bowl rings. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm the, just uh, like, the, what? What? Yeah, yeah, the, boy, the boys to men had the, the at the time the longest playing song. It it you know it it hip hip hop like pop radio. It was end of the road. It was like nine weeks, and it got bumped by crisscross jump. Both records were done at Studio Four. I mean, we come down in the morning, and the and the, and the boys to men guys were harmonizing in the hallway, you know. Um, and it um, and uh, it's it's you know, you know, say like forty two years really when you look at it, it's at Studio Four. If you look at the amount of hit records and everything, and just from from Rough House alone, but then all the other records that were done there. It and you know and this is this is no way to 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 impugn upon the the, the talents and capabilities of of obviously Kenny and Leon and Joe and all those guys and everything, but um, you know the Studio Four Roughhouse um, contingency uh, really really defined I think Philadelphia later on you know as being the place because a lot mm. of people talk about it's the first. It's, it was like it was all West Coast was happening in such a big way. And we were like one of the first foundational East Coast labels to really put it all together, you know? Right. Yeah. And when when talks you know, when, when Chris talks about, you know, Studio Four, it's like just, OK, I, I can name four people who recorded at Studio Four in Philadelphia. Boys to Men, Bob Dylan, Billy Joel and Cindy Lauper. OK. That's 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 pretty that's pretty. I mean, and you know, we're not even talking about the history of hip hop, which it's not too shabby. It's not too shabby, you know. And that's those are just names off the top of my head. So, hey, man, it's just uh, what it's a great great adventure, and the adventure is is still happening today. So, if you could each choose one memory, one memory, one favorite memory, putting together Black Sunday, what would that memory be? I got um, one. Go ahead. We uh and I didn't know, okay, at the time, but when we walked into the uh conference room up at Columbia Records and everybody's like clapping and it was like why they, why what what's going on here, you know? And it's because that night before it was like a Wednesday morning is that the 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 Black Sunday record shipped at number 1 it was like 560,000 copies or anything. And I, I recall, like, like, um, it just was like, well, this is kind of like the course of business because this is what we've been doing, like crisscross and everything and all the stuff. And it was like, and to see everybody from Columbia so thrilled and everything like that, and um, that was that was kind of cool. Yeah. It's funny, man, because before you even said that, I was I was thinking the same thing. I think Chris, what the Cypress Hill record entering entering at number one that came out before Crisscross, right? Um, or, or around yeah, the same. Cy no, it went Ooh, Cypress close. Hill, the first record, then Crisscross, and then the thing is, like the guys from Cypress didn't even know 
that both records, they didn't know that the one record entered the chart at number one, and then the other record crept up to number four. They didn't know this because they were on the road in Europe. And yeah. when the, when Black Sunday came out there, everybody was saying people were lined up at Tower Records like four blocks down to get this record. Yeah, I I I have to, I mean of all the memories too, and there's there's a lot in in the making of the record. You know, it's like where me and Muggs would both turn and look at each other and go, uh huh. But there, you know, that that moment when. I, I guess I I remember who, I don't even remember who who I got the phone call from. Um, oh, who was who was the head who was the head of uh, Denise Gatto? Denise Gatto, right? Right. Denise Gatto. I remember getting She's the head of production. Yeah, poor woman. I was. Yep. I was at the beach at the time, and Denise Gatto called and said, "You know, five hundred and twenty-two thousand. You guys are entering at number one." That that moment, man, it's just like the clock ran out. We won the Super Bowl, and we're holding the trophy in the air. You know that's yeah, that's yeah, yeah. it's hard to beat that moment. And when this is at this is after Crisscross, you know, was the fastest selling physical album in the history of hip hop. Yeah. Incredible. Here it is, Joe Niccolo, Chris Schwartz. I want to thank you for joining us and talking about this amazing history, this legacy, this 30-year legacy with Black Sunday. Thank you very much. Thank you, man. Luke, thank you. Thank Thanks, you very Luke. much. Thanks for having us. on this very special episode celebrating 30 years of Black Sunday. We're joined by Todd Ray, better known as T-Ray, to discuss the making of the third single and only song not produced by Muggs, I Ain't Going Out Like That. Let's go back to 92. You had recently at that time remixed Lord Finesse's Yes You May. There's this major buzz surrounding the records that you were producing and the T-Ray sound. What was it that resonated with you about Cypress Hill sound to the point of collaboration? Well, you know, Cypress, when they came onto the scene, they had they had a totally unique look, a totally unique vibe. Uh, Muggs had an incredible sound. Uh, 
I, w- I remember when they first came to New York to do a small club show, right when the album dropped, and I went to the club to check it out, and they just destroyed it. It was only like 100 people in the club. And I remember when they started performing uh, Stone is the Way of the Walk, which was my favorite from the first album. And uh, it, they just demolished it. And I caught myself jumping and yelling and, you know, and I don't, I'm not the type of guy that does that. You know, I, I normally am like more analytical, watching and observing and they just they just caught me and i was like yo these guys right here they've got something going on and then sure enough when that blew up and i saw the whole culture of what they were creating i just wanted to work with them i mean it was clear that they were historic and um doing something that had not been done can you remember how and when you connected with mugs to produce i ain't going out like that well, it, was, it wasn't actually Mugs. You know, what happened was I was, you know, at that time, you talking about the Yes, You May remix and stuff. I, you know, had yeah. done that, and that brought out Big L. That was his first time uh, on Wax. And I had, you know, some number one hits with Double uh, X Posse, not going to be able to do it. Uh, I had MC Search, Back to the Grill again, with that brought out, helped bring out Nas. And so really what happened was, at some point, and I forget who made that first initial reach out, but I believe Be Real reached out to me and said, hey, I'm in town, and this was in New York, and um, I'm in town, I'd like to hear some beats. And I was like, well, what are you looking for? And he told me, he was like, I forget who, you know, I remember they had a, I thought they had a beef with Ice Cube at the time, I, but lately they've been talking about, uh, somebody else but you know um he was basically saying he needed something hardcore something heavy uh something powerful to fuck with somebody and so basically i just you know i said hey let's hook up and um and that's how it happened we just hooked up i played him the beat and he was like yo i gotta have that and then and they were the ones that told mugs about it you mentioned Big L. I want to go back to Big L for a second because, of course, you had just did You Know What I'm About, the original version at that time, I believe. Now, the special thing about that record is that there is a similarity about that structure, and I ain't going out like that. Do you see that structure? Do you see that similarity in structure I'm talking about? Yeah, well, that that that's that's uh, you know, that's something that I've talked about in the past. You know, to friends is like, you know. I was in a certain style at that time. Right. And uh, when I, when I done that track for uh big L, you know, I guess, you know, really when I made, ain't going out like that, I made it quickly. I, you know, when I, when B real reached out to me, I was like, yo, cause I already had beats, some other beats obviously, but I made that one specifically for him. And I just made it really on the spot. I ended up making that beat ain't going out like that in like 15, 20 minutes, I really wow. threw it together. And, you say um, that so casually. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's really like that, you know, when you're making beats yeah. and you're kind of like creating. And again, like you said, like Cypress was very special at that time, man. They were, they were very special. So unique, you know, and I, and I just wanted to, I wanted to be a part of their 
new album at, at all costs. So, uh, you know, I guess that was why I was able to make it so quickly. But when I would look back and I listened to Big L, you know what I'm about, the original version that I did, um, I I definitely see that similarity, especially with the bass line and yeah. the high, you know, the high pitched sound. Those two elements definitely uh, are very similar. What did your process look like during that period and what kind of hardware were you using to make beats with? Well, uh, well, my process was, you know, when it came to making beats, I was all sample based. So the first mm. process was digging, and that's all I did. And that's what I was known for. I mean, every producer in the game from Finesse, Showbiz, Q-Tip, Large Professor, Pete Rock. I mean, I could go on and on. Every single major producer at the time knew about me and my digging. And so that was the first process is like the competition of like who can find the the best elements. And the other thing that I was great at was taking elements from, you know, 10 different records and putting them together, but in a way that just seemed cohesive and, and, and like one part, you know, one piece, you know, people would think it was a loop or a sample, you know, just a sample of a full two or three bar, two or four bar pattern but i was creating all that and the only equipment i used uh was a casio fc1 which was a sampling keyboard and an alesis sequencer and the rest was just on me that's the that was the process then that's the process for me now it's like it's really you know how can you take something that came from the past and turn it into something new so much so that the original uh, artist wouldn't even recognize that you've sampled their record? creating the song i mean i had the track and and be real did have he he his when he came with the chorus it was just we ain't going out like that you know and then he would just keep saying it and in the studio i was like yo sam what are you gonna do and he's like what do you what do you mean what what am i gonna do i was like yo what are you talking about you gotta respond we ain't going out you know like his style we ain't going out
dude, when we when we made the record, when we made the song, it was like it was really spontaneous. I mean, we we got into, you know, like I said, I met with B. He wanted something hard and heavy. I had made it that day. He loved it, bugged out on it, went crazy for it. He said, I'm gonna play it for mugs. So he played it for mugs. And that's and so then it was just a matter of like setting up a session. And and when we set up the session, you know, we went into the studio and it was just really like it was just a vibe, you know, mug they, they were tripping on mushrooms, which was crazy. <laughs> and mugs was zoned out. Mugs was totally zoned out. He didn't say a word. He didn't say one word. He just sat on the couch on the side and just watched. And B was like, you know, kicking his rhymes. And and like I said, when he got to the chorus, I was like, there's this empty space here. You got to sin. You got to do your part, man. I mean, this is the this is your thing. What do you say? It was almost like he didn't hear it. And I was like, yo, this is your style. You know, this is what you do. And he was and so he did he did his part. And then we um you know, we went through the song, we we got a, we got great vocals. Um I did a rough mix of the song, you know. And then that was it. I mean, that's that's how it went down. There's a lot to be said about the fusion between East Coast and the West Coast stylings within the sound of Cypress Hill, especially at that time. What was your yeah. relationship until that point with Send Dog and Be Real, who were living in LA, whereas Muggs was living, I believe, full-time in Queens, New York? Did you guys have conversations about those different stylings, the juxtaposition between East Coast and West Coast? Well, actually, I didn't, you know, I didn't have a relationship with Be Real and Send. I just they had they especially be real he him and mugs i guess knew about my beats you know because i was i was coming in and coming in with a, a powerful explosion at that time right. everything i was making was banging and everybody was talking about me um and as far as mugs mugs i i i remember when mugs you know this was during that time after the i, I believe after we recorded ain't going out like that. That's when Muggs moved out to New York. And me and him used to roll through New York all the time. Actually, at one time, I told him, I was like, yo, we got to do an album together. And he was like, yo, what do you mean? What would we do? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, you know, our styles are crazy. You know, we need to do something. And so um, I would take him around New York shopping because Muggs was Muggs made beats, but wasn't like necessarily a, a deep digger. You know what I mean? And so I would take him around and take him shopping. Yo, you got this. Yo, you got this. You know, and, and hype him to stuff. And, you know, so I had more of a relationship with Muggs at that time than I did fully with B and Sin. I mean, I did with B. At, once we started recording, I did with, I had a good relationship with B, but we weren't hanging all the time. Me and Muggs were hanging out a lot at that time. And Sin Dog... I never, I mean, we had a relationship from working, but it wasn't like we were, you know, hanging out a lot. It was mainly me and Muggs were hanging. Got it. You mentioned the samples, the way those samples were looped. They had a freedom from convention. It was part of this magic we're talking about, the Black Sunday breathed. What are your memories of turning Muggs and the group onto samples? And was there any sense of pressure being the only featured producer 
next to mugs on Black Sunday? Well, yeah, I mean, I turn, I, like I said, I turn mugs onto a whole lot of stuff. I, I, um, I gave him the baseline and the beat to Insane in the Brain. I gave him uh, the loop for when the shit goes down. I gave him the loop for what goes around comes around. And um, those were all bangers on that album. Um, and to be honest, it was kind of part of our mugs. You know, Cypress is and was Muggs. It was his vision. You know what I mean? And um, yeah. in some way, he didn't. I think he felt a little uncomfortable letting me come in. Do you know what I mean? Like it was it wasn't like he was against me or nothing, but it was like right. he 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 had this kind of, you know, he wanted to maintain it. But B wanted that track. And Muggs was like, literally like, yo, you got to let me have these all those you know, samples I just told you about, you got to let me have these if you want to get that one. And I was like, oh, okay, I, I'm, whatever you guys want, I'm down for. Insane in the membrane. Somewhere in here, there is Cypress Hill. Never thought we'd be making history. I am the international smuggler extraordinaire. Be real. Mugs and Senate were everything that hip-hop needed to be. Cypress comes from our generation where you had to be different. The music wasn't so big yet. Cypress Hill came and just kind of kicked that door in. We went from playing in front of 16 people to 150,000. They were like beautiful train wrecks. The sound of marijuana is Cypress Hill. It was very taboo to talk about it at the time. We were all trying to get it legal. Yo, y'all got to be the Cheech and Chong of this motherfucker. No extra charge, Cypress Hill. <laughs> Cypress Hill comes out. Not only were they Latin, they represent the Latin culture on the West Coast. Cypress Hill went deeper into it like few hip hoppers have ever gone before. We will hit you like this. They transcended hip-hop. They went beyond hip-hop. Were you trying to get crazy with this scene? Being a DJ, especially down south, I mean, I literally introduced hip-hop to the south. I started, I was DJing in 82, and there was no hip-hop really in the south. So I so for me, I I brought I would fly out to New York by every two of everything on the wall uh, of the music from music factory in Times Square. And I would come home and I would rock crowds with what I had discovered, you know, cause a lot of everything back then was pretty much independent. And I would just, uh, I would just pick songs that they didn't, no one in my area had heard them, but I knew they would rock. And eventually I got to the point where I just knew what would move a crowd you know, what styles, what tempos, what beat patterns, uh, you know, the level of bass. And when I got into producing, that translated because, you know, as a producer, you want to give an artist something that's going to elevate their life, elevate their performance in live, and ultimately give them the opportunity to create, you know, 
movies within the minds of the listener, you know? Mm. And that's what I would always, you know, people like Nas, Big L, you, you know, these kind of rappers, even Be Real, you know, that's a big thing is being able to write lyrics in rhythms and patterns that create images in people's minds. Because once you get a listener to see something, they're captivated. Now they're caught. Now they're caught up in the movie that you're showing them, and um, and then they attach that movie to the artist. So it's always about how do you give how do you give that artist something that's going to push them to be their best, and how and and then you got to have the balls to confront because you know Big L was a tough kid. You know he he was really you know he was a little rough kid, and and Nas the same, and everybody every you know even G Rap cool g-rap when i was in with g-rap you know everybody i pushed because for me as a dj and a listener i knew what people wanted from them and i knew that ultimately if i could get them to do their best performance then that's just going to be good for them their families and everybody else you are somebody who's pushed to elevate these artists we're talking about you've always been somewhat of a mentor somewhat of a teacher how do you think these artists we're talking about from Nas to Big Al to the Artifacts and, of course, DJ Muggs and Cypress Hill, what have they taught you? How have they elevated you as a producer? Well, you know, I've always been amazed at people who have an incredible lyrical ability. Um, so for me, that's how they've influenced me is by getting me excited. I mean, I do my best work when I'm excited. And I don't work with people unless I'm excited. So, so I think that's the main way they've influenced me is, you know, like when Muggs came out with it, with the Cypress sound, you know, I recognized public enemy in that sound. I yeah. recognized, I recognized Marley Marl, like big daddy came raw with the sat with the crazy sounds and, you know, just a beat and a, you know, a, a, a sound to, you know, so I recognized where he came from in turn sonically, but I realized that he had twisted it and changed it into his own thing. And that was really interesting for me. And that, that was an inspirational in that way, you know, was that his style was, I knew where it had evolved from, but it excited me the way he had done it. You know, that first album, that first album, I mean, the second album's great, obviously, but I'm the first album when they, really showed up was just incredible incredible how did the remix for hits for the bone come about the t-ray mix uh well that one mugs just had, told me they needed a remix and so i said yo let me let me get on that and and that's how it happened he asked me to do it and i uh you know i got in the studio do that together. That's a, I love that remix, man. Everybody on listening to this podcast needs to go listen to that remix because for a lot of people that slipped through the cracks. And you know, really, it's a great remix. Mm. And uh the thing that I was happy about was when I finished it and handed it to Muggs and he listened to it, he told me, it's like, yo, this is the best remix I've ever heard. He told me that to my face. I was like, yo. Wow. Thank you, brother. Thank you. And um, same thing happened when I worked with House of Pain for their um, 
put on your shit kickers. I did a remix for that. And House of Pain said the same thing. Yo, this is the best remix we've ever had. So, um, you know, that's how Hits from the Bone came about. Muggs asked me to do it, and I took I took it and ran with it and, and, and made a classic. Do you want to get high? of remixes going back to the lord finesse the legendary lord finesse remix for yes you may did it bother you and does it bother you when people call it a remix because it's it is an original composition it's very much an original song in its own well it, you know it, it back in those days it didn't bother me because it was so it, it was so common to do that you know but the thing about that particular one that bothered me was everyone talked about it but they always talked about like it was a remix, but it wasn't a remix. I mean, Big L wasn't on the original version, you know, it was a, other people, you know. So, yeah, it bothered me a little bit because. And, and also my credits on that kind of came back as like mixed by or so I forget the credits were a little funky. And and so I didn't I didn't get the light for it that I other than those that were in the New York circle that just knew. Um. So the credits on that and the um and just the way people looked at it as a remix, yeah, I it, it bothered me a little bit. I mean it doesn't bother me anymore. I'm very proud of it now. Judgment night is a hair raising, heart stopping, nail biting film. Come to the neighborhood, boys. An absolute must see. We saw a boy get murdered tonight. And if they catch us, they're gonna kill us too. A non-stop trip that leaves you breathless. I get a wife little girl and i will get back to them tonight action packed edge of your seat excitement you better believe it judgment night rated r starts friday at theaters everywhere well one thing that's really interesting is years you know going many years later i got into producing some rock albums for some hardcore rock bands and stuff and i was amazed at how many rock artists just loved that song and were covering it. A lot of them were doing covers of it live. And uh, and they're still doing it. I mean, to this day, people are doing it. Um, so if anything, I would say that, you know, the whole album, but especially ain't going out like that, there was something about it that touched not only hip-hop fans, but rock fans and mm -hmm. rock artists. I mean, I just thought that was just cool because... We, you know, in the early days of hip hop and stuff, 
run DMC, you know, blended hip hop and rock. And, you know, we, me and Muggs worked on the Judgment Night soundtrack that combined hip hop and rock. And classic. So it had been, it had been done, but it was very rare for a hip hop song to influence a rock artist without guitars on it. Right. Right. What can you tell me about that soundtrack? That was a classic itself. Like you say, very revolutionary. Comes around mm -hmm. and knocks everybody out, blows everybody's socks off. Judgment Night. What can you tell me about working on that? Well, that was, you know, that was just an idea that um, one of Cypress's managers, he he was doing some soundtracks and stuff. And, and we had all talked about, like, ideas for that soundtrack. And that was an idea that came up. And... It was it was a great idea. I mean, honestly, the whole the not everything I think was perfect on that album, but I think that it was a great concept album in terms of combining artists that you normally wouldn't see. Um so I it was a great soundtrack in that way. What about your contributions for what would become an unreleased project for the Hooligans? What are your memories working with a young alchemist, uh pre-alchemist, of course, Mudfoot? Yeah. Well, they, you know, those guys were kids. I mean, they were literally, I, I don't know how old, but they seem, I forget now, but it was like maybe 15 or something, you know, they were literally kids and they were really hip hop. And I remember I used to call Al, uh, little Pooba because I felt like he sounded like grand Pooba back then. So, you know, my thing was little, he was little Pooba at that time to me. And and, you know, his partner, Scott Kahn, went on to be a very famous actor um, right. from a famous family and everything. So, you know, it was fun. It was a great thing. You know, I flew out to California to work on that. And I remember hanging out and B was there and, you know, getting another song with, you know, we had songs with B-Real and, and the Hooligans that were dope. I mean, these, these those songs should be released today. You know, the, the crazy thing about it. I've even asked, I even asked Al the, uh, about a month ago, like where are the, where are the instrumentals to that man? Because I'm ready to just put out the instrumentals, like forget it. And I, you know, I, I'm searching myself for, you know, my copies, but I haven't been able to find them in storage. But um, it was a lot of fun. You know, Be Real was hanging out, Mugs was hanging out, House of Pain was hanging out. Baker boys from radio from wow. radio back then were hanging out because they were working what about on evidence. It. Yeah, evidence was hanging out, and you know a lot of people don't realize Al and Ev, they've been, I mean they've been down since they were children. I mean like kids, and um, that's why I'm really you know, I hate to say it like this because it's not like I I, I kind of feel like I'm their uncle in a way you know because I'm really proud of them. Even to this day, you know, I mean, they're grown, obviously grown men and all, even older now. But but when I see them and I see what they're doing and how they're keeping it alive and keeping it real and keeping their artistry within their control and, and definition, I'm just pr I'm very proud of them, man. I mean, you know, to see those guys at that time, they were so enthusiastic. I mean, they were uh, they were standing over my keyboard. Yo, how do you do that, T? Yo, show me how you did this. Show me how you, wh what are you doing there? What are you doing? You know, so their first pickups of 
production were those sessions. Um, so, you know, what I remember about that is just being really excited about these kids uh, that just were so in love with hip hop and trying so hard to do their best. And, you know, Tommy Boy, in my opinion, really messed up by not releasing that album. I think they released a single and then they didn't release the album. They really they, they really messed up. I mean, they should have they should have released it now. They should release it now. It would do well even now, considering Al's history. Do you ever pause to consider the impact you've had on several generations of kids for the past 30 years now? Do you ever think about your legacy and what you've created? You know, as I've gotten older, because I, you know, I'm, like I said, I started in 82. So I've been in this a long time. You know, for me, I think the greatest thing that I feel uh, happy about is that I always supported the artist first. I never allowed a label or another producer or another artist that might be popping in trying to talk shit about something. I never allowed them to influence the artist. And my goal was always to help young, because see, I came up in hip hop like that. And I came up in the South and no, at the time there was nothing going on in the South. There was nobody to turn to. I will tell you this though, something that uh, no, I don't think I've talked about this before, but do you know, do you know who DJ Eclipse is? Absolutely. Halftime radio show. Halftime radio show. Well, DJ Eclipse at the time going back into the going way before fat beats, way before, uh, any of that, um, D DJ Eclipse was a kid that lived down South in Columbia, South Carolina. And I was in Lancaster, South Carolina, living in a shack. He'll tell you, he came and hung out with me in the shack. And, um, but I, the only reason I even heard of him is one of my friends, uh, who was one of the other top DJs in the South at that time. He's like, yo, I ran into this kid in this record store in Columbia and he reminds me of you. And I was like, why? Cause he's white, you know, just fucking with him. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, y'all really, y'all really seem like y'all on the same wavelength. And, and so I said, no shit. So one day, I just drove out to Columbia, went to the record store, and I went up to him. I was like, yo, my my friend Mike Izzard told me that that you were in the hip-hop. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, no shit. Well, let's hang out, man. And I went and hung out with him. He was living with his mom. And he was originally from Rhode Island. And he had a, he had a good collection of hip-hop records. And I just told him, I was like, yo, we started hanging out. And then he started coming and hanging out with me when I was making beats. and. He would give input on, you know, beats at the time that I was making. And, you know, listen to this. It, I was so I, I was so poor at the time, I couldn't even afford floppy disks to save my beats. I had to, I would literally reuse cassettes and make the beat, make the beats, record the beats on the cassette in the knowledge that if somebody ever, you know, this is when I didn't even believe somebody was going to buy a beat from me. I wanted them to, but I didn't believe it would happen. Um, and I would basically just put them on cassette with the idea that if somebody wants it, I'll have to remake it. But I know where, the, you know, I know what I used and all that. And he yeah. would come over and hang out. But long story short, I'm making a long story out of this. But um, 
the fun, funny part about it is that when I was working with Serge, he was like, yo, I'm going through this area and he was going to be in Colombia. And I was like, yo, you got to meet my boy Eclipse. And that's how he ended up becoming MC Search's DJ. And that's what brought him to New York where he got involved in, with Fat Beats and all that. So me and Eclipse go back to wow. South Carolina going way back. So when I think of him, I feel like I have a small part of his legacy. He's got a small part of my legacy. But ultimately, we were the root of each other, you know. And when I think of people like Al, Alchemist, when I think of him as a kid, I'm just proud that I was there to support him in his youth and to let him know that he was dope and let evidence know he was dope. You know, when I was in with artifacts to let them know, you know, I was at Stretch Armstrong's Stretch and Bobito show when I met artifacts and I was like, yo, we got to do something. Um, same with double X posse, you know, you know, I helped them get their deal. And it was just one of those things where like, I always supported the artists. And even, like I said, even when I got in with KRS and got to work with KRS and the cold crush brothers on a record, I had, I was, uh, clearly you respect KRS one. You know what I mean? He's a big guy. You don't want to talk shit to him, but I knew when he wasn't even had not delivered on his best level. And I was like, yo, you just, just go in there and give it one more shot, man. Just on that part, those six or eight bars, you know, just give me that one more time. You know, so what my verse was, was that? What verse was that? Well, that was from uh, a song. Uh, if you search it, it came out as a white label. It was never released commercially. It came out as a white label. Um, I think it was a sample issue or something, but it was a song with KRS-One and the Cold Crush Brothers. So just wow. search on just search on YouTube, KRS-One and Cold Crush Brothers, and you'll hear it. And you know, I I, I think ultimately my legacy is that I, I'm that guy that always supported the artists, always supported young producers. I was always ready to turn somebody on to a, a sample and a record that had a great beat on it that they could use. I was all, But I was always competitive. And the one thing I want everyone to know about my legacy, I don't care what anybody says. I really don't care. But I was truly, easily, if not the king of the beats, one of the king of the beats. And, and when I say king of the beats, I don't mean making beats. I mean finding them. I was, everybody knew that T-Ray was digging harder than anybody in the game. And, and the fact that I had so much energy in the early to mid 90s inspired a lot of people.
next on the podcast, closing this very special episode, we are joined by the legendary Daniel Pearl, director of photography for I Ain't Going Out Like That, his first rap video in which we discuss for his 50th year as DP. The Cypress Hill video, We Ain't Going Out Like That, is, 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 an, is interesting to me and important in my career and development is 30 years ago of course i'm an established cinematographer at that time but um it was the first hip-hop uh, video i ever worked on um you know i'm i'm sort of this um guy who was shooting music videos at least one a week and i only listened the only music i listened to was my next music video and i was listening to that over and over and over and over again so probably not as as widely versed at the musical scene as a lot of other people. So this is my introduction to hip hop. Of course, it was a hell, hell of a great introduction to hip hop. What a great track, great performance by the guys. And um, it also was uh, my introduction to F. Gary Gray. A guy named um, Craig Fanning had a company called FM Rocks, and he would find directors who he thought were promising working on a very sort of low budget area coming to him with whatever kind of films that impressed him and uh, he would then hire myself and my crew would be us being the high-end guys at the time and um, it was his gamble that he would take a little bit takes a bit of a loss on a few projects in order to build a strong reel for the directors and so um, that was the situation with which uh, I was working with F. Gary Gray on that one. Can you remember how it was pitched to you? Take me back to that moment in time. Of course, we're talking about 1993. Black Sunday's just dropped. How was it pitched? I, I, I don't remember any context of, you know, of you know what the actual words or what it was what what it was told. I can tell you this much: is that you know I was given a treatment. Uh, I don't I don't recollect what the treatment said right now. I don't have a copy of it. Um, sure. It's, just, it's odd. It's about it's a couple of years later that I start saving everything. Um, it's a little bit early ahead of that, but I should have been saving all that kind of, all that stuff. Uh, so I don't have the treatment synopsis scenario, whatever you want to call it, uh, outline even for this, for the story. It could just be a couple of paragraphs saying, you know, we're going to make your video. It's going to be out in in the woods at night. You know, I mean, it may be nothing. I don't know exactly what it was. So I wouldn't, don't quote me on this, but the process is, is that I do get whatever written creative they have. Uh, so that basically, that's you know what I what I uh, like I said I can't tell you exactly what I was told about it. I know we did scout it. We did go out and scout it, and we did talk about both the the several different. There's a few different scenarios in it, right? There's the fireplace. There's the gravesite. There's the the, the cemetery hill. Where was that shot? It was all shot out in um, on uh, Malibu Canyon Road in. Uh, I don't know if it's Malibu State Park or it was one. It's one of the parks along uh, Malibu Canyon. Um, it must have been done. I would think it must have been done in the winter if they let us have a fire. So in those days, nowadays, we shoot a video a week or two before the single comes out. Um, back at that time, there was more lead time in there. Uh, you know, we might shoot a, uh, a video a month or two before the single comes out, sometimes three or four months before the single comes out. Um, that's all changed quite a bit because what's happened is uh, post-production does need its, its amount, you know, proper amount of time to get done properly. And uh, the record companies kept 
shorting back on that, pulling back, pulling back, pulling back. It's basically as a result of them awarding the jobs in the first place. So if they're slow to award the job and they, they have a fixed release date, then the amount of time to shoot the job and to post the job gets less and less, shorter, shorter, shorter. So in those days, we probably had a month or two lead time. Um, today, it's uh, sometimes four days, five days, something like that. to F. Gary Gray. Yeah. What were those conversations like initially in terms of the look of the video? Did you storyboard anything out for this video? Wow. Did we storyboard it? For some reason, that seems familiar. I can't say for a fact that we did. You know, I had just uh, a guy named Dave Myers was another director that had come through FM Rocks, Craig Fanning. And, you know, I've been doing Janet Jackson with him. I've been shooting... Uh, um, Mariah Carey, a lot of Mariah Carey stuff with uh, Larry Jordan directing. And, uh, you know, that's more the kind of work I was doing at that time. How did you feel about cinematography and rap videos until this point? We're talking about a time pre-Hype Williams, who, of course, later on you would collaborate with. What was your yes. thoughts on yeah, rap videos yeah, at Hype, that time? Hype, yeah, Hype rang me up one day and goes, uh, Damn, man, uh, my name's Hype Williams. Uh, you're a major cat. I go, well, thank you very much. He goes, well, I want to be a major cat. I said, will you shoot for me? I said, you got money? He goes, yeah, I can get money. I go, well, come on, let's go. So that's what happened with Hype. But um, that's how it came about. And I love working with Hype. I mean, Hype, uh, you know, this is a guy who, you know, in some ways started out as my little brother and wound up becoming the master, you know. Uh, and Hype... Um, Say what you will about hype. His ideas are his own. He's not stealing from anybody. You can see a logical progression in the visuals in his videos. And, uh, you know, hype, hype, hype knows what he's doing, knows what he's talking about. When it comes to filmmaking, that's for sure. Once again, Cypress Hill. Talk about that lighting. Can you remember what lenses you used as well? Wow. 
Wednesday is. Um, you have to give me a moment and let me have a quick look, look at the pieces. Well, it's three, four aspect ratio. So we didn't shoot anamorphic. I think it was, uh, I'm going to guess at that time and that budget, it would have been an Aeroflex, um, uh, either Arri 3 or Arri 435 uh, camera with Zeiss speed lenses. Uh, I, yeah, because, you know, film is not near, the film in those days was not nearly as sensitive as the digital cameras are now to light. And so I probably had the Zeiss, what's called the Zeiss high speed lenses. Those people out there are technical, they're F1.3 lenses, which are at least a stop, if not two stops faster than the other available lenses. And they have a nice, have an appropriate feel to them for this piece. You know, they feel, you know, it's a bit edgy and, you know, and the lenses, lenses are good for that. They're not too glamorous, not too pretty. As far as, as, far as lighting goes, lighting is to some degree driven by the situation. Uh, you know, fire, we have fire, you have fire effect lighting. Um, less apparent than, um, uh, than it would be if the piece were in color. We originally shot in color, right? Because- Really? Interesting. Oh, yeah. Originally shot in color. There are two, uh, two cuts in the course of the piece. One on uh, Send Dog, and the other on Be Real, later in the piece. And you'll see the color negative. It's, it goes orange, just flashes orange for a second with a, a bit of blue. Orange is just the clear base of the film that would, would come out as black. And um, originally the piece was filmed with Aeroflex cameras, probably the Arri 3 or the 435, depending upon. If 435 had been released at that time, it definitely would have been on the 435. Uh, and um, the film, we shot a color film because uh, it was more light, twice as light sensitive as the fastest black and white film. And, um, you know, it, it, with the situation we had shooting at night in a forest or in a park, uh, you know, you don't want to be, uh, you know, uh, short on light. You know, you, you, there's a certain amount of light you have to have. So uh, that's why the, the, I made the choice to shoot in, in color and then drain out. I, I lit with the black and white look in mind. Um, but, uh, you know, um, did, did shoot it on, on color film, which was not, a, not an unusual thing to do at that time. Uh, it was it, the color film, as well as being twice, at least twice as light sensitive as the um, black and white, the fastest black and white film, it also uh, had a better grain structure and a better feel to it. It didn't feel so dated. Black and white film called Double X. It just felt to me like it was ancient and meant for old documentaries and not for feature films. I mean, nowadays we think of music video as entertainment, but in those days it was a commercial. The idea of music video was to sell the track, right? And now, you know, it's, 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 yes, it's entertainment and hopefully you like the tracks, you like the videos and you go see the artists, but they're not making money selling albums that much as they used to, uh, used to be their primary source of income. So to, you know, brand it by, by, by having the graphics, you know, matching the style, having a video match the style of the graphics of the album, it makes all the sense in the world. It's only going to help sell the album.
I wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when Fly Fidelity updates because it's so great. But I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh-oh. You're wrong. <laughs> Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My people, are you with me where you at?